hello there. It's uh, good to be back and to have the opportunity to talk with you all for a while. I hope that uh, you all are doing all right, staying safe and staying healthy and staying as joyful as you can be under the, the circumstances. God is still in control of things, and we all need to, to lean heavy on the promises that, that he has given us, that he is working all of this crazy business together for our good. He, he's working it all together in a way that will ultimately display his glory. Be strong and be patient and continue to, to do all that you can to glorify our king. Well, today we're going to launch into a three-part series that I call The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Now, if that sounds like a, a movie title, it's because it is. Uh, the, I, I became a, a fan of science fiction in, in, the fourth, in the fourth grade, and my class was a, a divided class of fourth and fifth graders in, in a roughly equal proportion. Well, I became friends w with one of the fifth graders. Uh, his name was Mark Henry, and, and Mark was an avid reader, as I was, and he gave me a book to read. It was called The Red Planet by Robert Heinlein. Now, this book, uh, although it was part of Robert Heinlein's juvenile science fiction series, you know, made, made for kids to read, uh, it was a quantum leap beyond anything that, that I had ever read before. And from that moment, uh, I was a sci-fi guy. I loved to read the books, uh, watch the movies, and, and the television shows. And, and yeah, just for the record, I do identify as a Trekkie, but the original series only. My interest uh, in science fiction went so far as, as to purchase books about science fiction. And, and one of the books that I had uh, when I was young, it was called Science Fiction in the Cinema. And between the time when I started working on this message and when I am recording it today, I got this in the mail from Amazon. Yes, it is a copy of science fiction in the cinema. My collection is complete. This book was written in 1969, so the most recent film mentioned in the book is 2001 A, a Space Odyssey. So it's a little dated, but it starts in 1902 uh, with a movie called A Trip to the Moon, which was uh, made by the French director Georges Méliès. Uh, the, the contents of the book are divided into, into different sections, uh, you know, aliens, uh, space travel, and there was a section on post-apocalyptic, uh, future-set science fiction stories. And, and one of, of the films mentioned was a film by the title, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. And I just thought it was a, an intriguing title. It, it was... It was kind of scary, and I had never seen the movie, but I always wanted to. It was made in, in 1959, and it starred uh, Harry Belafonte, Mel Farrar, and Inger Stevens. Uh, those names will be familiar to some of you, I'm sure. Uh, Inger Stevens was in a TV show for a while called The Farmer's Daughter, which was one of my favorites. So that was another reason that I always wanted to see this movie. But it was a box office flop. It had a very limited run in the theaters, and when and if it ever showed up on TV, it would be like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. So I never, I never saw the film. It, it ended up being largely forgotten, 
However, in the 80s, I eventually got around to seeing that film. See, Blockbuster Video had a section called Le Bad Cinema, entirely devoted to bad movies. So I finally get to see this movie. And I have to say that probably the best thing about it uh, was the title. But that title still haunted me, and, and it continued to haunt me. So let's flash forward about 15 years, uh, and I'm sitting in the Life of Christ class, right, at, at San Jose Christian College, and we are studying the temptations of Christ as they are presented in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And the professor brought up that these temptations are often referred to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And a light goes off in my head, and, and I just thought, oh, that's where they got that. So th this seems like the perfect time uh, to introduce our passage for today. So let me read from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be reading through from the ESV version. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Well, once I learned that... The temptations were referred to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. I had to find out more. I learned that they were referred to as the three enemies of the soul, kind of an unholy trinity, if you will, in direct opposition to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, as early as the 12th century, in the writings of Peter Abelard, the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, was used. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas used the term in his Summa Theologica. It also made appearance in, in the 16th century, uh, during the Council of Trent's discussions on justification. And most scholars would agree that the phrase more than likely entered into the English-speaking world, because up to this point everything else had been written in Latin, uh, entered the English-speaking world through the Book of Common Prayer, which was written in 1549. And reading a portion of the litany from the Book of Common Prayer, we find, from all the deceits of the world, the flesh and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. Now, as Bible scholars, which we all are, or should be, 
We should be wary any time that we come across something that is based on a single passage. So even though it appears in Matthew and in Luke, it is only that one event told from two different viewpoints. So why then would a seemingly solitary incident gain so much traction in the Christian world? To answer that, I will uh, refer to what John the Apostle wrote in 1 John 2:16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These three items that, that John mentions have an exact one-to-one correlation to the three temptations that the devil offered to Christ. When the devil says, if you are the son of God, tell these, so, tell these stones to become bread, that is the devil trying to get Jesus to give in to his hunger, which is a desire of the flesh. When the devil shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, he is appealing to the desire of the eyes. The devil wants Jesus to desire what he is being shown to such a degree that Jesus would sacrifice his his very identity to have it. And finally, when the devil dares Jesus to leap from the highest point of the temple, he is attempting to, to make Jesus show how powerful he is. He's trying to bait Jesus into a prideful response that, that would tell the world, hey, look at me. Do you see what I can do? That is the boastful pride of life. So I thought that was pretty neat, the way that connected. But what really brings it home, at least for me, was going back into the book of Genesis and discovering that the unholy trinity was right there in the garden. Hey, check this out from Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, there's the pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Well, because the Apostle Paul is is one of my favorite guys, and I I try to work him into a sermon anytime I can, I, I I did a little research hoping to find a contribution from him that I could share with you this morning. And I was not disappointed. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Well, the world is clearly mentioned. The prince of the power of the air is the devil. The devil is, as Paul explains, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, causing them to live a life consumed by the desires of the flesh, a life that leads them to be regarded as children of wrath, instead of beloved sons and daughters of the Most High. This sermon series is going to focus on one aspect 
of the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, each Sunday. And today, we will begin by taking a closer look at the temptations of the world, how they can manifest themselves to us, and what we can do to guard ourselves against them. Now, in our selected scripture, the three temptations do not appear in the same order as our message title. So uh, we're going to begin at verse 5. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, and you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put your Lord God to the test. Now, if you'll remember, the world corresponds to the boastful pride of life. And if anyone should know about the destructive power of pride, it would be the devil. I mean, a- After all, that's how he got his job. He was driven out of heaven because his prideful nature led, led him to believe that, that he was greater than God. And, and I can't help but believe that the devil, out of pure spite, decided to use pride against mankind because he gets a perverse joy by watching others fail in the same way that he did. Pride is at the root of all sin. In one form or another, when you peel back all of the layers... Guess what we're going to find at the center? Pride is to sin in the way that a flour is to baking. You know, we can add all kinds of ingredients to a recipe to make it look different and taste different and and smell different. But it will all begin with flour if we're bakers. Now, this analogy is not perfect. You know, I I know that there are are plenty of recipes that can be made without flour, but but I hope that, that we all get the point. In our passage, the devil is appealing to Jesus' pride. He dares Jesus to to show the world how important he is, to to show the world that he is special and powerful. And he taunts Jesus by reciting a passage from Psalm 91. Now, one of the things that should leap out at us from reading this passage is that the devil can and will quote scripture. I mean, that's a whole other sermon right there. You know, I can't spend a lot of time on it right now, but, but I do feel that it is prudent to offer the following observation to you. There will be times when we are offered some really bad advice that's going to sound really, really good. See, Scripture, taken out of context and misapplied, which is exactly what the devil did, is a recipe for, the, for disaster. So we, we all need to, to study the word and to test every spirit. Now, could Jesus have called upon the angels of heaven to come to his rescue? Absolutely. But to do so, it, it would have meant that he had succumbed to temptation. And that was simply not in his nature. His role in God's plan for our salvation demanded that Jesus live a sinless life. So instead of taking the devil up on his offer, Jesus quotes some scripture right back at him. And the devil has has to regroup and, and try again later. But make no mistake, 
Jesus was tempted. The scripture is very clear about that. You know, there's a tendency among some Christians, uh, members of the church, uh, to water down these events because Jesus was God. But as difficult as it is to to get our minds around it, Jesus was also 100% human. And that was the part of him that the devil tempted. See, if that were not if that were not the case, then a scripture like Hebrews 4 would be of no help to us whatsoever. Let me read. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in his flesh, just as we are tempted in ours. But he was able to overcome temptation and provide a standard for, for us to aspire to. You know, who doesn't want to feel significant and important? It is in our very nature to desire these things. You know, we are all born with a, with a space in our heart that yearns to, to be filled with something. And, and the devil will do his best to make us think that we can fill that hole, that space, by ourselves. One of the ways that that we try to fill that space is by taking credit for things that God has done. Do you remember why Moses was forbidden from entering into the Promised Land? So Moses and the people, they've been out wandering in the desert for 40 years or so, and they had run out of water. Well, that's a pretty serious problem anywhere, but especially uh, when you're in the desert. So Moses and his brother Aaron, they pray to God, and God instructs Moses to speak to a rock, and that God would then cause water to flow out of the rock. Sounds pretty simple. Talk to the rock, you get some water. So Moses gathers all the people together, and he says, and I quote, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? And the people probably went, yeah, do it, man. We, we want some water. So Moses takes his staff, and he hits the rock twice, and water flows out of the rock, and all of the people and all of the animals get to drink their fill. But God is not very happy with Moses. <laughs> Moses did not follow God's instructions. Instead of just speaking to the rock like he was told, Moses decides to put on a little show that made it look as if he and his brother Aaron had caused the water to flow from the rock. And as a punishment, God forbids Moses from entering into the promised land. After 40 years of wandering, all Moses got to do was look at the promised land from the top of a mountain. Moses had committed a sin of pride. He had, he had put a man at the center of what was supposed to have been a God-centered story. Well, all of us are in a God-centered story. Any talents or gifts that, that we possess have been given to us by God. A couple of years ago, I was talking to one of my colleagues at work. Uh, she is a 
very talented artist, and after looking at some of her sketches, I commented that she had a real gift. Well, that didn't go over nearly as well as I thought it was going to. Uh, she replied, gift? This is no gift. This is hard work and practice. Well, I was a bit taken aback, especially because uh, my friend claimed to be a Christian, and there had been occasions before where we had talked about God and Jesus and what it meant to be a Christian. And so I kind of felt that she, of, of all people, would have been able to recognize that, that she was able to do something special because of the way that God had created her. You know, I have taught, over the years, I have, I have taught enough guitar lessons to know that not everybody who wants to play an instrument is able to play an instrument. You know, the gift can be refined and improved through practice and hard work, but if the seed is not there, it's like watering a plastic plant and expecting it to grow. If you are fortunate enough to possess a gift or gifts, be gracious and acknowledge that the Father of Lights has blessed you. Fame and fortune are powerfully attractive forces. We are bombarded with images and, and stories of, of celebrities and, and the beautiful people enjoying their perfect lives. We have been conditioned to believe that being famous is an end unto itself, just being famous. The desire to feel significant, to be famous, has driven some people to an all-new low and given rise to a segment of entertainment known as reality TV. Reality TV, the oxymoronic wasteland that celebrates just about everything that is wrong in the world, elevating and exploiting human misery in the name of entertainment. There are shows that encourage and reward the baser instincts of human behaviors. Nice guys finish last. That's the prevailing theme. Self-centered treachery is looked upon as a good strategy for winning. Marriage and dating have been reduced to a spectator sport. Real, genuine love is, is so far removed from these staged spectacles that it would be laughable if it, if it weren't so sad. Mental illness, medical conditions, physical deformities, criminal behavior, and moral failings have all been the subject of a reality TV show at one time or another. But no matter what the focus of any of these shows has, they all share at least two things in common. The first thing is they have a network that's eager to throw money in their direction. And the second thing is that they have people who want to be on TV, people who want to feel special or significant, people who want to make a name for themselves and who are willing to go to any length to obtain that status. This is a tough subject to, to speak about because there there's so much that is so wrong with the, the whole industry that I found it really difficult to keep it brief. So, you know, don't be surprised if, if you hear me talking about it some more in the future because I have the feeling, the distinct feeling, that it is not going away anytime soon. 
and, and it's probably going to get worse. You know, although the, the vast majority of us are, are never going to end up on television, we are still afforded an, an opportunity for public notoriety thanks to the marvelous invention that we call social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr. It's the double-edged sword of the information age. According to some estimates, there were 3.5 billion people around the world with a profile on at least one social media site. 247 million of these were in the United States. It's a huge online stage where anyone can be whatever they want to be, a stage that, that offers instant validation through likes, shares, retweets, comments, and, and the number of friends and followers. There are digital backdrops that make it look like you are anywhere in the world. You, you can post a picture of you and your, and your perfect pet standing in front of the Eiffel Tower, then just sit back and, and count the likes. It sounds like harmless fun, and for most of us, it is exactly that. But the darker side is this, that there are people in the world with that space in their heart that they're trying to fill with social media. There are those Unfortunately, a lot of them are, are young people who have been victimized by a particularly insidious aspect of social media, and that's the cyber bully. We have created a culture that completely removes the humanity from social interaction in the very worst possible sense. People can say whatever they want to whoever they want with impunity. It, it is now possible to build yourself up by tearing someone else down without ever meeting them face to face. There was a, a generation of people so entrenched in this culture, so dependent upon it for their personal identity that they can't stay away from it. Even, even when it's damaging their self-image and their, their self-esteem, they return time and time again like a moth to a flame. The cyber bully is a 21st century face on a very, very old enemy, feeding his ego at the expense of others. Seeking fame and, and fortune is not strictly limited to broadcast television and social media. Each and every day, we get presented with opportunities to elevate our status. There's always a situation where we, where we can point a finger at ourselves and, and get attention from other people. Now, I know, you've, I know you all pretty well, and I know that, that you're all doing your best to, to serve in the kingdom with humility. But I have to ask this question. Am I the only one here who has ever seen something on TV or on Facebook and thought, well... At least I'm not doing that. And I felt a little bit better about myself, a little twinge of superiority. Now, I'm fairly certain that, well, most of us do not go through life constantly seeking pats on the back or at a girls or at a boys. I'm a little less certain, a little less certain about our thought lives. See, thoughts eventually give birth to words. And those words can become actions. 
So it is imperative that we maintain our thought lives. We are all living in a God-centered story, a God who knows what we're going to think before we can even think it. So here's a little poem that, that a friend of mine shared about a week ago. Our minds are like gardens. Our thoughts are like seeds. We can grow flowers or we can grow weeds. Now, I know that it's kind of simple and corny, but let's not overlook a deeper truth that's presented here. The longer a weed is left to grow, the more difficult it becomes to remove. So we all need to be good gardeners. Let's keep our minds on higher things, on the things that are worthy of our attention. Try our best not to give the, a weed a place to take root. And when we do see a weed, we got to yank it out by the roots. The boastful pride of life is a treacherous and it's a deadly enemy, an enemy that hides behind many faces, some of, some of those faces strategically designed to appear benign and unthreatening. We have to be spiritually prepared to fight this enemy. So let's look at a few ways that we can do that. Proper spiritual preparation begins with the proper view of ourselves. We are, all of us, saved. Proper spiritual preparation begins with the proper view of ourselves. We are, all of us, sinners saved by grace. We have earned nothing, and the only thing keeping us out of hell is Jesus Christ. That goes for every single person on earth. In the words of the Apostle Paul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Christian view of self is in direct opposition to the world. The world would, would have us believe that man is at the center of everything and that there is no higher aspiration than the fulfillment of individual desires. The world places a premium on success and, and it really doesn't care how you get there. The rich, the famous, and the powerful are afforded privileges that, that people envy. But without Jesus, it means nothing. Without Jesus, it means nothing. In Matthew, we read, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The attentions of the world are meaningless in the kingdom of God. God looks upon all of us as beloved children in equal measure. And that is exactly how we are supposed to relate to one another. In Philippians 2, we read, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our search for significance must begin and end with God. Seek first the kingdom of God is some of the best advice that I have ever heard. It doesn't guarantee that we won't face temptations, but it does place us in a more defensible, a more defensible position. When temptations do come along, and they will, the very first thing that we need to do is pray. 
Prayer is a gift from God that we can use anywhere and at any time. Prayer can be instantly deployed to summon the power of the Holy Spirit in any situation. If I am a believer, I am never alone. If I have placed my hope and trust in Jesus Christ, I have a powerful weapon to resist the devil. Praying against temptation, at the very least, can buy us time. Time to get away from the source and and time to seek help from others. I cannot emphasize this enough. If there is an area of our lives that has the potential for temptation into sin and we are the only person who knows about it, we are playing a very dangerous game. I heard a phrase many years ago that has stuck with me, and it is this, we are only as sick as our secrets. Be humble, confess to one another, and let God work in your midst. We are stronger together, and the shared prayers of the righteous can provide a path out of the darkest of places. Now lastly, but most certainly not the least, is that we look to the example that was set by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the greatest man to ever walk the earth, an earth that he had created, never, ever sought its attentions. On the contrary, there are several places in Scripture where he advises people not to tell anyone that what they have seen him do. Can you, ima- can you imagine for a moment how, how that might play out today? Can you imagine a star athlete who doesn't want the world to watch him play? Can you imagine a, a band that, that doesn't want to perform in a stadium packed with people? Jesus would not have been a, a contestant on America's Got Talent, and he certainly would never have appeared on the cover of People magazine. Jesus when when faced with his own death on the cross, did not summon a heavenly army to the rescue. Instead, he humbly and obediently carried out the will of his heavenly Father. He didn't call upon the angels then, and he didn't do it when the devil tempted him. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus immediately responds with Scripture. It is important for us to to store the word of God in our hearts, because, as we read in Hebrews For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There are no temptations in the world that the scriptures can't help you fight against. The scripture that that Jesus quoted back at the devil is from Deuteronomy 6.16. The full verse actually reads like this. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Massah, which is the Hebrew word for test, is a reference to events that occurred back when when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and they were complaining and grumbling. A big surprise there. Anyway, they were complaining and grumbling and at one point they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? 
When we focus attention on ourselves instead of God, we're acting like he's not there. We're no better than, than the wandering Israelites who, who even though their clothes and shoes had never worn out and they were given manna from heaven to eat and water to drink, they still doubted if God was with them. It, it sounds kind of silly. Actually, that sounds silly that, that anyone, in light of what God did for us at Calvary's cross, would demand anything more. That anyone would, would have the nerve to say, God, if you're really there and you really love me, then you would do this for me. That is the boastful pride of life in action. The creation trying to manipulate the creator. Temptation is real. It is powerful, and the, and the enemy knows that by appealing to our basic desires, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, by doing that, he has the best chance of turning our eyes away from the cross. But we are not helpless victims. Far from it. Stand firm in the knowledge of who you are in Christ. Stay humble and gentle. Stay generous and kind. And pray, not just in the face of temptation, pray without ceasing. Maintaining a, a constant contact with our God is the best way to go through this life. Stay in the word. Memorize scripture. Knowing exactly what the Bible has to say about a particular subject, that's like gold. And keep our eyes on Jesus. We have been provided with the best possible example, and we need to do everything that we can to live as he lived. He was tempted and tested, and yet he did not sin. That is an extremely high standard. But the good news for us is that we serve a God who loves us in spite of our weaknesses, a God who has sent his Holy Spirit to help us fight temptation, a God who in his infinite mercy, forgives us when we lose the occasional fight. A God who will uphold us with his righteous right hand until the next battle comes around. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we have been given. We thank you for being a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Lord, grant us the strength to resist the temptations of this world. Let us be filled with your spirit and let us find our significance in you. Lord, we pray for your continued provision in, the, in these uncertain times. We are grateful that even though everything seems to be changing all around us, you remain the same. Righteous, holy, merciful, and so, so faithful. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he be gracious unto each and every one of you. May he turn his face and make it shine upon you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a good week. I love you, and I'll see you soon. Good morning. I'd like to say nice to see you again, but 
I can't see you. I'm looking at a camera in a room that's uh, essentially uh, empty. Time that we celebrate communion. Uh, the last time I stood up here, I mentioned a scripture, and uh, not a communion verse, but one about Christ. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. For us Christians, that's a, a, such a key fundamental thing. As Paul says, first importance. Primarily, I'm talking to the church, Blossom Valley Bible Church, but there may be somebody else listening to this. When I know that the tape has been made, it's permanent, who knows who hears it. Uh, for many people, if you're not a believer, you're not a, 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 in the Christian church, used to these things, probably that first statement, Christ died for our sins, that just seems to throw people. And it threw me for years, obviously, I think. I mean, I was sinning, but grasping the idea of the sin. Sin in the scripture is not like coronavirus, where you look in a crowd of people, some have it, some don't. It's not the good people, the bad people. It's clear that it's every single person, the breathing person, you're a sinner. Welcome to the club we all are. There's no way out except one. And that's what Christians believe, that's what our scripture teaches. So when we celebrate the simple uh, Lord's Supper, um, we're talking about something that's so huge. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, his son Jesus, whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's for everybody, not the bad sinners, not the little sinners, for all sinners, which means all people, which is you. Nothing offensive, we're just, that's the story. So we want to celebrate the communion. It's, it was a, originally a Passover meal, uh, celebrating the Passover that had happened years ago when God rescued uh, the Hebrews in Egypt and he passed over them in judging the, uh, the Egyptians, the Egyptians and their gods, their false gods who were all judged, but God saved, passed over the Hebrews, the Jews. Forward to 2,000 years ago, Jesus and the disciples have a Passover meal. But this one was different than any other one because it was the night before Jesus went to the cross. He wasn't surprised by this. He knew it was going to happen and he celebrated with his apostles. So those next verses, 1 Corinthians, this is where I'm starting. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to do that. And uh, I'm going to pray first. There's so many things one could pray about with a message like this. I mean, thanksgiving to God, uh, appreciation, uh, confession of sins, knowing that he's the one who forgives the sins enables us to come to him Honestly, humbly, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned. Forgive me even right now, thoughts or something like that. We can be like that. We don't have to hide from him. First of all, we never could anyway. But now especially uh, that he knows us and in his grace has forgiven us, 
we want to come to him and confess the sins. This is a personal thing. I'm not going to list out my sins right now, but this is personal for all of us. But we want to come to him uh, not as perfect people, as forgiven people who are seeking him, wanting fellowship with him, wanting to remember what he did, wanting to remember the importance of that. So uh, let's just pray and then we'll take the, uh, the bread, represents his body, and the juice, which represents his blood. <sighs> Father, the fact that you who are so holy, holy beyond our farthest imagination, we cannot begin to even comprehend it. That you could reach down through your son, Jesus Christ, provide a sacrifice for our sins and forgive us and then welcome us as your children. To say we don't deserve that is such an understatement. We don't. And uh, now on a tape, we're not going to take time to confess sins, but I certainly hope each one listening has that attitude of humble confession to you. Thank you, God, for your bread. Little bread represents your body. Thank you. Lord, thank you for this juice which represents your blood. Sacrificial blood. Not just physical, Jesus died in blood, but Jesus was a sacrificial lamb for us. We take the juice thanking you, praising you. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Thank you for this special time. Amen.